Okay, we're going to look at uh, the book of Genesis. We've been looking through the story of Abraham, the life of Abraham, uh, when I've been preaching over the last few months. And we're up to Genesis chapter 18. So if you've got a Bible, please turn to Genesis chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, um, we have got some spare, which we can lend out to you. Just raise your hand. Some of you already know the routine. Just put your hand up and uh, one will get delivered to you. It's Genesis 18. Um, we'll read the whole of the chapter, I think. Yes, we will. Okay, which says this. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Marmara while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and he saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them, and he bowed down low to the ground. He said, if I've found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered, do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three sears of fine flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he went to the, ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. Then he brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set those before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where's your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I'm worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I didn't laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to uh, see them on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that's reached me. If not, then I will know. The the men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find 45 there, I will not destroy it, he said. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? For the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. Okay. We've been looking at the uh, the life of Abraham up until now, and in Genesis chapter 17, in the chapter before this, God again met with Abraham, and uh, he gave him a new name at that point. He changed his name from Abram to Abraham. He changed Sarah's name from Sarai to Sarah, and he established a covenant with him. He'd already um, kind of 
established a relationship, a covenant relationship with uh, Abraham already. But at this point, he said, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a covenant with you. I'm going to be your God, and you will be mine, and you will walk in my ways. And uh, they, uh, he said, I want you to circumcise yourself, circumcise everyone in your uh, family, and circumcise everyone who is with you as a sign that you are in this relationship with me now, this covenant relationship. Uh, where I am your God, you are my people. So God had come to Abraham, and over the whole story of Abraham, right from Genesis chapter 12, we see how God has taken this man, this ordinary man, uh, and taken him from a place which was a godless place, and brought him into a relationship with him. Um, and we too have have been brought into a relationship with God, if we know that. Uh, we are no longer strangers with God. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19 uh, explains that to us. Um, it says in Ephesians 2:19, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Once we were strangers to God, once we were foreigners, once we were aliens, once we were outside of relationship with God. But God has brought us into relationship with us, with him. Not only that, he's brought us into being a members of God's own household. He's taken us through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, through Jesus' blood being shed, we have been brought in to living relationship with God, in the same way that Abraham, or in the similar way to Abraham, has been brought into covenant relationship with God. And so that's the context, that's the background to what we see happening in Genesis 18. Because here we're going to see how Abraham responds to other people. How it affects, how his relationship with God affects his relationship with others. More especially, how it affects his relationship with people that he doesn't know, other strangers, other people that he doesn't know. And we see it in two different ways in this chapter. We see how Abraham responds to the men who were actually angels, and one of them actually says was the Lord, God, um, who showed up uh, as, he was, uh, as he was sitting under his, uh, outside his tent. And we see it in how he responds towards the people of Sodom as well, Sodom and Gomorrah. So, that's where we're going today. Abraham then, at the start of this passage, is sitting outside of his tent. It looks as though it is siesta time. It's the heat of the day. The time of day when people would have just sort of relaxed a little bit. It's too hot to really do any work. He's going to chill out. He's perhaps going to have a bit of a nap. And maybe Abraham has nodded off at this point. Because suddenly he looks up. And he sees there are three men who are standing nearby. Three men standing nearby. And he didn't know, he didn't see them come. They're suddenly there. Now maybe they just appeared because they are angels, it turns out. But he doesn't know that at the time. He just thinks they're three guys who are standing there. He, it's worth bearing in mind, he doesn't know that there's anything special about these men. So maybe he's just woken up and they're there. Maybe they did just appear. Who knows? Um, but he sees them. And now as soon as Abraham sees them, he responds. As soon as he sees them, he does something. It's not like he just kind of opens his eyes and he's like, oh, there's three blokes over there. I wonder, I'll just watch them. I guess that's what we do. We like people watching, don't we? We like just sitting oh, I wonder, in a cafe or something. Let's, my, Debbie, my wife, she loves getting a, a seat by the window so she can look out of the window. Or so she can look out over the cafe. And just, just watch a few people, see what's happening. We like to people watch. We like to just see what's going on. Abraham doesn't do that. He's not watching. He's not sussing them out. He actually responds straight away. And it says, he looked up. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them. And he bowed low to the ground. He runs from the tent, uh, entrance to his tent. And he bows low to the ground and he invites them in to his, his tent, his house, for a drink. He says, I'm going to wash your feet. I'm going to give you a drink. He says, have a rest here and have something to eat. Uh, a morsel of bread is actually what the literal translation is of what he says. Have a morsel of something to eat. Now, we do have to take this passage in its context, 
in the situation at the time. Now, we need to bear in mind that the Middle Eastern culture that Abraham was living in, there was a very strong emphasis on hospitality. And that is still the case today. If you go into many cultures, especially Middle Eastern, Middle Eastern cultures, there's a very strong emphasis on hospitality, caring for the needs of others. That's not a strong emphasis that you'll find in Western society, in the, in the UK, among, especially among white people who've lived in the UK all their lives. That's not what you tend to find in those cultures, that emphasis on hospitality. But it was Abraham's context. It was his cultural context. It's worth pointing out as well, by the way, when we're talking about hospitality, and I mentioned this to the core group leaders last week, kind of threw it out there with the core group leaders when we were meeting with them, that hospitality is all about responding to, in love to strangers. It's all about responding and welcoming people who you don't know. It's not about having our friends in church round for a meal. That isn't hospitality biblically. And often we can think that that is. We can think, oh, yeah, we're, we're kind of hospitable. We've always got people in church around for a meal. You know, we like to do that. We like to cook for them. Well, it's great, and that is fantastic, and we do encourage that. Um, but there's a different word for that in the Bible, and that is fellowship. Fellowship is inviting people who you know, people in your church family, other Christians who you know round for a meal, or welcoming them, or blessing them in some way. Hospitality is doing a similar thing, but with strangers, with people who you don't know. Maybe believers, maybe other Christians, but definitely people who you don't know, who you've not known before. And so in Abraham's culture, strangers were routinely cared for. It was the normal case. And as I say, our culture is very different. Actually, we don't tend to get to know people uh, who are strangers, even people who uh, live close by to us. They can remain strangers to us. I looked at a survey that was done in Cardiff um, this last month, and there was a survey about how many people in Cardiff knew the names, just knew the names of their neighbors, their immediate neighbors, the two people uh, the two, pe- two households either side of them. I wonder how many people here would say, think, oh, I, I, yeah, do I know the names of my immediate neighbors? Um, how many, well, you can do a show of hands if you want. How many, how many people would say, yeah, we definitely know the names of the people on both sides? Okay, great. Let's go one either side of that. So two either side. How many know the names of all four of those neighbors? Hmm, not, not too many. And they're just people who live a couple of doors away from us. And to be honest, you know, I've got to have my hand up that, uh, uh, no, I've got to have my hand down that I, I, I know three of them. I don't know two, one side of us. So it's very common that we can live very close proximity to people and they remain strangers to us. In Cardiff, 30% of people in Cardiff didn't know the names of their immediate next door neighbors. And that's probably about borne out in the church here, I would have said. About, it doesn't seem to be any different. To us, someone who is a stranger often remains a stranger. That's the status they have, and they can't get past it. To us, a stranger can mean danger. We, we get the TV adverts that we used to do. Anyway, stranger danger. And, or was it just me who saw those? <laughs> you, got, you, got the, you got the one with the... Um, with the, with the helmet, you, this was a poster, wasn't it? You get the helmet of the, of the motorcyclist. It said, friend or foe, we don't know. Because it, it's a motorcycle helmet. That was a good one. And then you, and then you got the, the, the old ones. This is showing my age. In the 70s, you got these public service ones where you got the, the cartoon with, with, um, with Char- Charlie. Charlie was the cat, I think, wasn't it? So the little lad and his cat, Charlie. And he'd go, Charlie says, don't talk to strangers. And there'd be these little men who would, these men who would be offering sweeties. No, don't go with them. Don't talk to strangers. Well, we, we've grown up and we, we can just not talk to strangers, even when we're not little kids. Now, it's good to not encourage our kids to talk to strangers, to strange men who offer them sweeties. Please don't encourage your kids to do that. But, but when we're adults, actually we're a little bit safer. We're not going to get abducted, probably. Um, so it's okay, but we, we kind of have that attitude. 
we're going to keep our distance from strangers. We don't know them. They're all a little bit, they're a little bit odd. Especially, um, London seems to be one of the worst places for this. You go down onto the tube in London, no one will talk to you on the tube in London at all. So there's no friendliness at all. And actually, if you are wanting to try and do something about it and try not to be a stranger, and you think, oh, I'll, I'll start a chat with someone, actually, they'll look at you as though you're even weirder and it'll just confirm in their mind that actually you are a stranger and you're just weird and I'm going to back off from you and I'm going to get into a different carriage. So we can just be very nervous about people that we don't know. Um, and that's something that we, we, we need to get over and we need to try and battle with. It's inherent in our culture. It's a very different culture to Abraham's. Um, so Abraham actually was doing some of the things that were expected in his society. Now, I would imagine, so I'm, you know, I'm not suggesting that if you see three people walking, someone walking past the front of your house, that you rush out to them, that you bow down before them on the ground, oh, oh, come into my house for some food, let me wash your feet, come and have a rest in my house. That will probably make them just freak out. It's not going to play very well. But, but that is exactly what was expected of Abraham in his culture, of, of, of their culture. Um, it would have been expected that you'd have washed people's feet as a sign of, uh, you know, humility and I'm going to care for you. It would have been expected that you'd have offered people somewhere to rest from their travels. Because obviously traveling was a lot much of a, a, a much longer and hotter and harder thing in those days. It would have been expected that you'd have offered something to drink as well. What we need to do is translate some of what Abraham was doing into our culture. Into, into what it looks like in our culture, because it's not going to look exactly the same. Now, one of the things, though, that we do, would, would be helpful to see, is actually Abraham goes over and above what was expected in his culture. So he didn't just exactly fit into his culture. For example, one of the things that he did was he, he hurried to meet them. Now, that was something that Middle Eastern men just never did. You never saw them running. They didn't run. It was actually a sign of, of great, great shame was brought upon them often in their society if a man ran. That's why it's so significant in the story of the uh, lost son. If you remember that story, the, the lost son, he goes away and then he, eventually he comes back and he's coming back uh, sort of full of, full of, you know, I don't know if he's full of shame or not at that point, but he's thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to my dad and I'm going to see if I can work as his hired servant. His dad sees him, the father sees him, and he runs out to meet him. Now that is a big significant thing because that would have brought real shame on him in the eyes of his, his culture. And in fact, they wouldn't have understood the fact that he was running to this son who'd virtually said, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance. So this, this, this man is running. Now, Abraham does the same thing. He hurries or he rushes to these men. And then later on, you see that he's running about in verse 7. He runs to the herd and selects a choice tender calf. He's running about in the heat of the day. This isn't a normal thing that he would have done. It's over and above. He's, he's kind of putting himself out for them. Um, now, he's offering them. He's saying, oh, just have a morsel to eat. Just have a morsel to eat. But he doesn't just do that. So the men, the men come in and he's persuaded them to come in and they're going to have uh, this hospitality, receive this hospitality. As soon as he's persuaded them to come in, what's the very next thing that he does? He runs and rushes to his wife, probably because he hasn't got a clue what to do at that point. Oh no, I've offered them a meal. I don't, how do you do that? So he, Sarah, um, Sarah, can you, can you, uh, hurry and, uh, go and get three sears of fine flour and knead it and bake some bread? And we can think, okay, he's asking, he's asking Sarah to just go and make a bit of bread. In fact, he said to them, come and have a morsel of bread to eat. How much bread does he actually make? Well, three seers. Who, how much is three seers? You might have thought. Well, if you've got a footnote, it says that is probably about 39 pints or 22 liters. So this is how much flour she's getting. Now, I don't know how much flour it normally makes, takes to make a loaf of bread. Maybe, I don't know, a liter maybe? 
I don't know, who are the bakers in here? Who are the people who are into that? Who knows? But anyway, she, she's doing 22 liters of, of flour here that she's going to have to kind of grind and prepare and then knead it in. She's, she's like setting up a whole bakery business here. You know, she could, she could be selling, selling this to, to neighbors for, for, for however long to come. She's making a huge amount of bread. There's three men. And then, and then he rushes to, um, to the servant. He runs, he runs to the herd and he doesn't just think, oh, you know, we've, we've got a bit of, we've got a bit of meat in the fridge, so we've got a few burgers left over, whatever. No, he, he rushes and he finds a choice tender calf. Um, and actually some translations would say a bull instead of a calf. This is a, a big animal. Even if it was a calf, it's still pretty big. It's three men. They've already got enough bread for their starter. <laughs> you know, it'll take them long enough. Well, it, it probably needed a bit of time to get this bull killed and slaughtered and prepared and all the nice cuts done. But he's, he's got a major barbecue going on here, as Abraham, uh, with his servant. So he's got that going on. He's got them curds and milk, and it's a huge feast. An absolutely huge feast. Now, I would imagine they probably didn't eat it all. But the point is, he's going over and above what is expected in his society. Over and above. In fact, actually, even when he bows down so low on the ground, that wouldn't normally be that usual. You wouldn't bow down as low as Abraham says that he did. It says that Abraham did. He's putting himself out for these people. So he's in a, a culture of hospitality already. There's the expected norms. He's putting himself out even more for that. It's the heat of the day. It's a hot day. You know, he would be forgiven for, for just thinking, oh, you know, I'm just going to take it easy. We'll get there in the end, you know. But no, he's dashing about one way or the other. Hot work. Sarah's getting there. And then at the end, he gets it all prepared. He serves it up to them. And he stands there under a tree. And it's almost like he's got his little, uh, his little tea towel over his, over his, his arm. And he's waiting on them. He's got servants who could wait on them, but he's waiting on them himself. He's putting himself out for these people. He's showing great hospitality, biblical hospitality. And Romans chapter 12 encourages us too to show hospitality. It reminds us to practice hospitality. Romans chapter 12 and verse 13. Whole list of things. Uh, in response to God's love, and remember, I mean, Arnold preached to us, didn't he? This is about where he got to in his preaching. But he, he preached to us all the early chapters of Romans are just telling us about how God loves us and how he's poured himself out for us and how he's rescued us and set us free from sin. And then he says, in the light of all that, at the start of chapter 12, therefore, therefore, this will affect how you live. All of these 11 chapters about God and what he's done for you will affect what you live like. And there's a list then of things. It's not just a list of, oh, I've got to do this. Oh, I ought to do that. I ought to do that. These are lists of things that will just be an outpouring of a response to God's love in us. And one of those, in verse 12, it says, in verse 13, share with God's people who are in need and practice hospitality. God is reminding us, Paul is reminding us here, to practice hospitality as a response to God's mercy to us. Hospitality is also a key part of what Jesus taught. So Jesus in Matthew 25 tells the story, uh, a, a kind of, uh, of, of what will happen on the last days when the sheep and the goats, he, he talks about them, people as sheep and goats. And he says, uh, in verse 31 of Matthew 25, When the Son of Man comes in all his glory and the angels with him, he'll sit on his throne. All the nations will be gathered. He'll separate the people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Uh, and then in verse 34, The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance for the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And it says, and then they will say, well, when did we do, when did we do these things? 
And the king replies, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And then he goes on to the others, those on his left, and he says, actually, you depart from me. He says, because when I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. And I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. And they'll say, well, well, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and didn't help you? And he says, I'll tell you the truth, whatever you didn't do for the least of these, you didn't do for me. And they'll go away to eternal punishment. And you think, well, hang on, is God saying there that, that the whole thing about whether we're saved or not is on how we respond to people? If we see people hungry or thirsty, is it all about what we do in those situations? Is it all about whether we invite strangers in? Is it all about whether we... I thought it was about God in us. I thought it was about free salvation. Grace saved by grace. Saved because of the love of Jesus. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. But our response to that, the outworking of that, will be all of these things. It will be that if we respond and know God's love in our life, that we will help people, we will feed the hungry, we will clothe the naked, we will invite in the strangers. We're responding to what God has done to us. He's welcomed us in. We were strangers, we were aliens, we've been welcomed into his family. And so we will welcome others in as well. So it's not saying it's about what we do, but it's, just, it's saying, well, what has happened in our hearts will work itself out. The book of James is, is, says similar things, doesn't it? It says, faith without works is dead. You can't say, I've got faith, oh, I believe, and do nothing about it. Actually, what we believe outworks itself because we, we, have, we receive it from God. And we say, actually, we want to show it to other people. Hospitality is also a criteria of eldership. First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2. A whole list of things, most of which are things that all Christians should be able to do and should be like, apart from perhaps ability to teach. Um, but First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2. Um, the overseer must be above reproach, husband of one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. Hospitable. Hospitality comes into that list as well. So even though we don't live in a particularly hospitable culture, hospitality still needs to be a key outworking of our Christian life. We need to find ways to be hospitable in our culture. Like I say, we don't go as far as Abraham does. We don't go and kill cows for people if they're just walking past our house or bake, you know, set up a bakery. We don't do that. But there'll be ways in which we can put ourselves out for people. In the same way that Abraham went over and above, he put himself out. It shows him, showed him to be different from the rest of society. And as we are hospitable, as we put ourselves out for other people, it will show that we are very different from the rest of society. And one of the things we'll see is that it's inconvenient. Sometimes, in fact, a lot of the time, as we are hospitable to people, it will mean inconvenience for us. We might have got plans. We might have got things that we plan to do. And then, and then someone calls round or something happens or we come across someone and we think, actually, we're going to need to change our plans now. It can't be like, oh, well, we'd love to help you, but do you know what? We've, we've, we've got this appointment here or we're going to this place or whatever. Actually, sometimes our plans need to change. Being hospitable means giving people of our best. Abraham and Sarah weren't prepared for the visit of these three men. But they rushed about in the heat of the day and they gave of their best. They gave of their best. It says, he ran and selected a choice tender calf. What is the best? What is the best thing that we can give them? Which is the, the best calf that we can kill? Okay, that's the one. That's the prime one. That's the, that's the one that is the most succulent. That's at the best age. It's going to have the best meat. That's the one we're going to kill. We're not going to kill it for a big party. It's not, it's not, you know, it's not going to do it for Sarah's 90th birthday party or whatever it might be that they're going to have for her. You know, it's going to be for the stranger. It's going to be for the stranger. It's like saving the best wine. For the stranger when they call around. Saving the best meal. Giving of our best. 
I've been in cultures where hospitality has been key, and I've, I've experienced Christian hospitality in those cultures. And I've been in places where people themselves have just been drinking contaminated water, where there's real disease. In slums, they've got very little food, and yet they've cooked their best food for me. They've given me meat. They might not have eaten meat for months, but they've given me their meat. I've been to a place where they gave me a can of Coke, and I knew that a can of Coke cost them a week's wages. But I came, and and they didn't know me, and they gave me a can of Coke while they were drinking their contaminated water. I've also had Christians in the UK show me hospitality. People, when I I used to work for an organization called Tear Fund, and um, there was someone who I didn't know, and they offered as their house in Cornwall, they said, look, we're not going to be in this house. You can come down, bring your family, stay in our house for a week's holiday. And we didn't know them at all. It was wonderful to receive such love for people. How can we put ourselves out for the sake of others? How prepared are we to put ourselves out for the sake of others? Or do we just default back into our culture, be like our culture, not be any different? Or are we going to stand out from our culture in this way, showing the love of God, showing how God came out and welcomed us as strangers? It's a wonderful thing for Christians to show God's love by taking care of people, even taking care of our neighbors, looking after them. You know, there's opportunities if you're looking for them. You know, today, you might have cleared your drive of snow to get out. But what about clearing your neighbor's drive for them? You know, those people who've got up early have already mentioned them, actually, to clear and dig the snow out around here for people who maybe don't know, don't know everyone who's coming here. Um, But actually, no, I've got up early. I've put myself out. You know, I've set the alarm an hour early because I know I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to dig myself out and then I'm going to have to dig out the Jubilee Centre. There's opportunities. There's an opportunity if you think, oh, well, yeah, oh, that's a good idea. I could have done that. Well, there's an opportunity this afternoon up at Shycliffe. Well, that's not our congregation. I don't know the people at Shycliffe, no. But there's a car park out there and he's digging out. Now, I'm not saying you have to go and do it, but there's opportunities. There's opportunities to show hospitality, to put ourselves out for people. If we're giving, if we, if we're driving, if we've got a car, opportunities sometimes to take people home, to give people a lift. Sometimes people say, oh, you know, do you you live on my way? Are you going my way? It doesn't matter if you're going their way. Go their way. Go out of your way. Having people maybe come to stay. And if, if people are going to stay in our houses, Giving them the best room, giving them the ensuite room with the with the with the nice bathroom, so we can sleep on the airbed or whatever it might be. And actually, it's good to teach our kids this as well, isn't it? It's good to teach our children to, that we we can put ourselves out. Kids, it's good to put ourselves out to not have all the nice things ourselves. Actually, Abraham, um, where is it? It says, God says in chapter nine, in chapter eighteen, verse nineteen that we've just read. It's about Abraham. He says, I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right. We, we're to teach our children some of these things. You think, well, actually, isn't that just, isn't that just a bit of legalism for them? Because maybe our kids don't even know God. So what, that's not out of a response for God, no. But we are modeling God's love in our love for our children. We are showing something of God's sacrificial love to us by our sacrificial love for our children. And so out of of a response to that, we can encourage them to put themselves out for the sake of other people. Oh, you mean I've got to give up my bed? Actually, that'd be great to give up your bed when someone's coming around so that someone else can sleep in it. Or whatever it might be. Trying to think outside of our culture. Trying to think outside of it just being about ourselves the whole time. Let's not neglect hospitality to strangers. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 2 says that. Uh, Hebrews 13 and verse 2. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Well, that was Abraham. 
That was exactly what Abraham did. He entertained angels without knowing it. Because unbeknownst to him, these three men were angels. They were from God. And one of them was the Lord himself. And we know that at the start of the chapter in verse 1. It says, the Lord appeared to Abraham. But Abraham didn't know that. He didn't really know that until a little bit later on. He kind of came into it. Maybe it was at the point where they said to him, well, where's Sarah, your wife? And they thought, hang on, I didn't know you knew my wife's name. How do you know her name? And they, and they started to know and they said, oh, actually, he was entertaining angels unawares. And interestingly, at the very time that Abraham and Sarah are focusing on serving others, serving these strangers, that's the time that God blesses them. That's the time that God says to them, and you know what? You've been waiting for a son for years and years and years. You're 90 years old now. Now Sarah is past the age of being able to have a son. She's past the age of being able. She's past the menopause. That's what, that's what it says. It's kind of put in a bit more, uh, you know, flowery language in the NIV. But it, she's past the menopause. She's not able to have children anymore. And at that point, God says, no, in a year's time, you will have a son. That's when she gets blessed. At the very point that they are showing great love and hospitality for others. All this time that they've spent waiting. Now, Sarah, Sarah finds it hard to accept. She finds it hard to accept. And so she's kind of heard it all before. She laughs to herself. She doesn't actually laugh out loud even. So she laughs to herself. <laughs> After all these years, is this really going to happen to me? She's thinking. She's probably being a bit cynical about it. And God, God picks her up on it. He, he says to Abraham, why, why is she laughing? Why is she laughing? Actually, Sarah, Sarah, she doesn't respond too well, Sarah, at this point. At this very point, Sarah should be just going, oh, yeah, sorry. She, she doesn't. She, she, tries, she tries to cover it up. She actually lies about it. Oh, I, di- I didn't laugh. I didn't laugh. God says, yeah, you did. You've got to be a bit careful. You don't want to be lying to God. You don't want to be saying to God, oh, I didn't do this. <laughs> because God knows. God knows all the thoughts. Are. We might think, you know, because actually, Abraham heard the same thing in chapter 17, didn't he? He laughed out loud. In verse 17 of chapter 17, Abraham fell face down and he laughed. <laughs> will a son be born to this man? And then God says, yeah, yeah, she will. She will. So he's laughing as well. Sarah's laughing and keeping it inside. And she's thinking she can, she can hide it from God. Oh, I, I'm not laughing. No, you are. You are. I know the thoughts of your heart, Sarah. I know what you're thinking. Let's, let's not be those people who, who cover up and, and pretend before God. We can't pretend to God. We can't pretend to God. There's no point in arguing with him. No point in convincing ourselves and trying to convince him that he doesn't know. But God does something in their lives. And what's impossible for humans is possible for God. And he's going to bless them with a son. And we'll see that later on. But let's get back to how Abraham is responding. So he's responded to these men. Now in the second half of the chapter, we see how Abraham walks out with these men as they leave. He doesn't just kind of say at the end of their meal, Oh, glad you've enjoyed your meal now. See you. Off you go on your way. No, he's, he's walking out with them. You might think, well, he's, surely he's done enough. Surely now he needs to get back to his sleep. Uh, you know, in the, in the heat of the day. No, he's walking out with them. And as he walks out with these angels, maybe he's apologizing for his wife. Oh, I'm sorry. You know, she, sorry she lied to you. No. <laughs> Do forgive her. No, he's walking out with them. And they, and, they, and they start to head towards Sodom. And at that point, at that point, God tells Abraham what he's got planned. It's a sign that Abraham is, is, a, is becoming a prophet. A prophet is, those, is one who God tells what he has planned to. And God does that today. He tells his prophets what he has planned for the church. Now, it, it, this isn't good. This isn't good what he's got planned. But he tells Abraham what he's got planned. He says, you know, this... This outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great. I've heard so many bad things about them. I've heard their sin is awful. 
And I'm going to go and check it out for myself. And if it's as bad as that, then I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to destroy this whole place. These two places, Sodom and Gomorrah, it's going to be destroyed. Now, what does Abraham do at this point? Now, bear in mind, he's exhausted at the end of this busy day. He'd, and he's probably, he's probably got problems with these. He's probably had some issues with these neighbors himself. He'll be aware of what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, in fact, he is, because he's already rescued his nephew Lot from them once before. He's had to go and rescue the whole place because it got carried off. So he'll be aware of what Sodom is like. He didn't just kind of go, oh, yeah, too right, God. About time too. I was wondering when you were going to do something about them. I was wondering when you were going to sort out that immorality and this godless behavior. You know, they need to, they need to be a bit more, more like me, really, don't they? He didn't do that. He didn't do that. We might be tempted to do that. You know, if you've ever had problems with your neighbors, whose names you probably don't know, but if you've had, if you've ever had problems with your neighbors, you, you can probably, you can get really aggravated by it. And so if you heard, oh, God's going to really sort them out. Oh, there's something that they're going to get their comeuppance. You might be tempted to think, oh, great. Oh, I'm going to get a prime view for watching this. You know, what, oh, angels, what are you going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah? Actually, I'm going to, I'm going to pour out fire and brimstone on them. Oh, that'll be, that'll be good. That'll be a, a good view. Be, right, fireworks show. I tell you what, if we're overlooking them now, I tell you what, we're going to get my family all out. We'll sit on the hill. We'll have a little picnic. We've got some spare meat left over. We'll bring the barbecue out. Get all the extra bread that's left over. We'll have, we'll watch it. Oh, raining down on the sinners. He's not doing that. That's not Abraham's response at all. These two angels walk off to Sodom and Gomorrah, leaving Abraham with the Lord. Leaving him with, with, with Jesus, really. It's Jesus coming before his time. It often happens in the Bible. The Lord appears to, to, these, to these men. Abraham's left and he's standing before God. He's standing before the Lord. And he starts to intercede on their behalf. He starts to call out to God and almost negotiate with God and say, God, are you, are you really going to do this? Are you really going to do this? He's, he's you know... He may be, he's probably exhausted, but he's taking the time and the effort and the courage to do that, to call on God to save these people. And he, he says, God, if you, if, what if you find 50 righteous men there? What if you go down and there's all this immorality going on, but there's 50 men, 50 people who are righteous? Are you gonna, are you just gonna blitz them all? Is the fire and brimstone going to come down on all of them at once and the righteous and the unrighteous go at once? He's saying that's not right. Surely God. Surely God, you're a God who is just. Surely you do what is right. How can you do that? Will you not spare them? And God says, yeah, okay, if there's 50, I'll spare them. And then, and then he starts to get into, in, in persisting and, and keeping going with God. But what, God, what if there's 45? What if there's, what if there's not 50, but what if there's 40, only 45? Will you spare them? Yeah, I'll spare them as well. I'll spare them. If there's 45, I'll spare them. Okay, God, but what, what about 40? What if there's 40? And it's almost like a, it's like an auction in reverse. You see these auctions. And, uh, who'll, who'll give me five? Do I see 10 anywhere? 10 anywhere? 15 over in the back. 15 over in the back. 20, 20. He's, he's kind of going like that, but he's going backwards with God. What about 30? What if you see 30? No, I won't. Okay, I'll accept 30. But what about 20? 20, I'll take 20. I'll take 10. What if there's 10 over here? What if there's... And he's going down and he's, he's, he's not arguing with God. He's pleading with God. He's praying to God, really. He's calling out to God that he will save the city for the sake of... Is there only 10 righteous men in this whole city? Will you not spare the city? This is a godless city. This is a city that Abraham knows deserves judgment. He knows that God is a just God. He knows that this is an immoral city. But he's calling out for them on their behalf. He's crying out for them. And some people say, well, he's crying out for them because he knows. He's actually looking after his own family. He knows his nephew's there. His nephew Lot's there. 
Now, he'd been there before. Abraham had rescued him, and then Lot had gone back. But now he's there. Oh, he's, he's just he's really just wanting to save Lot. No, he's not. He doesn't mention Lot. He doesn't say to these angels, oh, you're right, you're right to pour out fire and brimstone on these guys. But actually, my nephew's there. And he's a righteous man. The Bible says he's a righteous man. You might struggle to see it in the Old Testament, but the New Testament says he is. Um, so we've got to believe it. Um, but he doesn't, he doesn't just mention his nephew. Can you just get Lot and my family out? In fact, actually, in chapter 19, that's exactly what does happen. Because Lot isn't a citizen of Sodom. He's just staying there. He's just a sojourner. So he's not included in this judgment anyway. In fact, the angels, and we'll see next time. That'll be a fun week, won't it? Looking at Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed. But we'll see next time. Um, we're looking forward to that one. Um, we'll see next time how they get rescued out by the angels anyway. That isn't what Abraham is calling out for. We need to be clear. He's not just looking after his own. He's calling out to God on behalf of people he doesn't know. He doesn't know them. They are strangers to him. And he's crying out for them. Crying out for them. Will you save them? Will you have mercy? Abraham knows that he is safe. He's not thinking about himself. It's not about himself. It's not about his family. He's known, though, what it is to receive mercy on his life. He knows that judgment will come, but he's pleading with God on behalf of other people. And that is what we do when we cry out to God for our nation, when we cry out to God for our city. We gather together, and often as we pray on a Friday evening uh, and, and gather together as a church, we will call out to God and we'll say, let's cry out to God for our city. And let's cry out to God for our nation. And let's pray that God has mercy on us. Let's pray that God saves people. And we know that we've been saved ourselves. It's not as though we're calling out for ourselves. Now it may be that there are people who we know and love. And we want them to be saved too. Of course we do. But we're not just calling out for people that we know. Oh God, save my friend and save this friend and save this family member. No. Actually, if we're, if we're being godly, if we're being biblical, we're calling on God for people we don't know as well. And people who do deserve punishment. People who do deserve to be punished. And we say, God, will you have mercy? Will you, will you, we know there's immorality, but will you have mercy on our land? Will you pour out your spirit? Will you open people's eyes to see you, to receive your love? So often we do that at prayer meetings, but it can be an effort. It's not easy. It wasn't easy for Abraham. It was an effort. It was the end of a long day. It was the end of a busy day, a hot day. He had every excuse to just go back home and put his feet up. But no, he's there calling out to God, Will you save them? We have those same temptations. Friday evening. It's not a great time to have a prayer meeting, is it? End of a busy week. You want us to call out to God for people we don't know? Yeah. Because God rescued us when we were strangers. Because God, we were strangers and aliens and those outside of God. And we've not stayed as those. Because God has brought us in. In his mercy, we didn't deserve it. We don't deserve what we've received from God. And we say, oh God, will you do that with others? And we and we call out on him and we have to put ourselves out a little bit. Sometimes we have to just put ourselves out. Inconvenience ourselves. The difference is actually, we know that as we call out on God, we're calling on a slightly different foot into Abraham. Yeah, we're calling on the judge of the whole earth, And we know that he'll do what is right and that sin needs to be dealt with. But we also know it has been dealt with. That sin has been dealt with on the cross. There's many in the world who are heading for destruction because of their sin. But it has been dealt with on the cross. Jesus, as he was being killed, as he was on the cross himself, in Luke 23, 34, he prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
Even as they were hurling insults at him. Even as they were dividing up and scavenging after his clothing. He said, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them, Father. He had every right to say, God, call down fire on these. Who killing the Son of God? Don't they know who I am? No, they didn't know who he was. And actually, in God's mercy and providence, even in what they were doing, it was bringing about the salvation for so many. But Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. He puts himself out for us. He gave up everything. He said, it's not my will, Father. It's your will. He didn't do what was convenient for him. He gave himself up for us. And we can cry out to God knowing that a way has been made for forgiveness to come. We can cry out to God knowing that destruction can be averted. It's very easy to just stay in our own comfort, our comfort zone, our nice church building, our nice church family, our meetings that we have, and think, oh, it's a bit inconvenient to start talking to people who don't know God. Start talking to people and show and showing love to them and getting involved in their lives. It's all a bit messy and it's all very inconvenient. But actually, the grace and mercy that we've received in our life prompts us to, to get involved in their lives and to call out to God for the lives of others who don't know God, even when we don't know them. Just to finish off, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1 says this. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He's saying, imitate God. God has loved us. We are dearly loved children. And we're to imitate God. Just as Christ loved us. And then if we needed it spelling out, it's spelled out for us. He gave himself up for us. What does that mean? We're to imitate God. How? By giving ourselves up for others. What does that mean? It might mean many, many different things. But it will mean inconvenience. It will mean putting ourselves out. It will mean plans changing maybe. It will mean not having as much comfort as we maybe would have done. It may even mean giving our lives. Because that's what God gave to us. And even if we do that, we will know we have it in abundance forever. Abraham was a man who knew what it was to walk with God. And it affected his relationship with others. He put himself out for people. He gave himself up for them. Let's pray the same can be said of us too. So let's pray.